0: Today's sermon text is 1st Samuel 13 through 15. I'll be reading chapter 14 verses 47 through 52. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 235. Hear the word of the Lord. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishphai, and Shuai, And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merad. And the name of the younger Michael, and the name of Saul's wife was Ahinahem, the daughter of Ahimaahaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man. He attached him to himself. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Good morning. Would you pray with me as we turn to God's word together? Heavenly Father, may the words now of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we look to your word. May they be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 2001, contestant Charles Ingram appeared to be the third person in the history of the British version of the show who wants to be a millionaire. He, he appeared to be the third person to ever win a million dollars. And if you, the recording, if you win a million dollars, like people go crazy. It's exciting to be there. You want to see that kind of outcome. But the producers are looking at different things than you and I are looking at when they're watching this television show. And they saw something where they said, there's something fishy about what just happened. So they, they withheld the money, and they launched an investigation into what was going on. And on further inspection, Ingram turned out to be a cheater. His wife and one of his friends were in the audience that night, and there were a few moments where he would get stumped on a question, and he would settle on an answer and then he'd ask the host to read the answers back, and when the host read the correct answer, his wife would cough in the audience. And the producers went back and watched the videotape and said, and he changes his mind, and says, oh, he changed his mind every time he saw that his wife was coughing. So what looked like what could have been a very enriching victory of a million pounds, I guess for them, Turned into actually a very expensive loss as all three of the cheaters were taken to court and they were all fined about 100,000 pounds. Now what you heard read and what we see kind of come out of these chapters, we're, we're going to be looking at kind of a similar dynamic in the life and reign of Saul. Saul has this way of looking successful, of, of looking really good on the outside, being victorious. In his exploits, but despite all that apparent success, all the clapping from many of the people who watch him from the outside, there is something rotten when you get up close. And I hope to show that as we walk through this text this morning. I've been praying that we would see what it is that God wants of us in this text. And that from here we would leave with a desire to fully trust and obey Christ. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at chapters 11 and 12, kind of the very beginning of Saul's reign. We saw the Lord give victory to Saul, even though the people had sinned, like asking for a king was a sinful thing they had done. And at the very end of the chapter, we see two roads diverge. This is if you're if you're in if you have your Bible open, you can just look at the last couple of verses of chapter 12. And here's here's what is we're told there. This is the words of Samuel to the people of Israel. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's the choice that lies before them, and we'll see just some of the ways that that resolves today. And I want to start with what you heard read by Becca. Becca I gave Becca the like all the proper names in this, so sorry about that. Thank you for doing it. But I want I want to start here because this is what I would call success from the outside. Success from the outside. From those few verses you heard read, things look pretty good, right? Like Saul at the end of verse 47, it says he routed his enemies, he did valiantly, delivers Israel out of all of those who seek to do them harm. He has a full family. He gathered mighty men to himself. It all seems positive. And from the history books, if you're taking like a history of military conquest class, Saul was successful. From the surrounding nations, all those who had territory in Israel and were pushed out, they could look back and say, Saul pushed us out. Maybe maybe even from the vantage point of like the average Josephus in Israel, Saul looks like he is doing what you want him to do. But we should stop and ask if those are the perspectives that really matter. Does this outward facing approval mean that things are actually going well in him and in the nation? I want you to think about this summary that you read here. Where where do you find this normally? Even think about today or even think about in Scripture. Where do you find summaries about people's accomplishments and their family and what they did in their life? You, you read them in obituaries. You read those in obituaries. But Saul is going to be here for another, the rest of this book. The rest of 1 Samuel, Saul is going to be a major character, but why then put an obituary in the middle of his reign? Because from the divine perspective, his reign is over. He has shown himself that while this one brief section just highlights the outward success, the bulk of these chapters, and where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is looking at the rot on the inside So we'll we'll spend most of our time, I've got it broken down kind of into four areas where you see the rot inside Saul pulled out. And that begins in chapter 13 where Saul does what the Lord forbids. Okay, so the Philistines in chapter 13, they're back on the scene. And Saul's son named Jonathan, he wins this great victory. He goes into a Philistine stronghold and wins. And this leads the Philistines to attack, to kind of muster all of their troops They have a huge number of chariots. They have troops that that are as many as the sand on the seashore. And the men of Israel are terrified. They run, they hide, and they tremble. Saul seems to try to rally his troops, but there's, there's one thing that he needs to do before going into battle. We're not really told this, but there is, it seems, some agreement between Samuel and Saul that before battle, Wait seven days, Samuel come and offer a sacrifice. And then you'd have the will of the Lord and you could proceed. Okay, so we'll pick up the story there. Look down in chapter 13, verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. He, that is Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said... Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So Saul sees people begin to scurry into the caves. He grows impatient. Instead of waiting on Samuel, he looks. he offers this sacrifice. But look now at verse 10. And as we read these next few verses, listen at Saul's defense. Look where he puts blame. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering." Now, Saul, at this point, doesn't, doesn't sound to us, if we just want to judge him from what we see, he doesn't sound like a nefarious villain, which he will sound like later in the book. Right? He's, he's not doing anything that looks all that bad. And that, to me, just in thinking through this, is perhaps the scariest part of this story, personally. Saul's, Saul's sacrifice has a form of godliness about it. As you look from the outside, he knows Offerings should be made before battle. And if Samuel's not there, maybe it's just better if I go ahead and carry that out, right? Even in talking about the circumstances, you can just kind of feel the weight of his defense. Did you hear where he was pointing? You, Samuel, you, you hadn't come yet. And the people, they're all jumping ship. The Philistines, like, we can see them. They're right over there. So I had to. I forced myself. And I say all that is scary because it sounds a lot like me at times. And I would bet if you look back over the past week, the past month, it may sound a lot like you at times too. The circumstances just meant I had to do this. What I did wasn't really my fault and what I did wasn't that big of a deal, right? Right? We don't really have to wonder if it's a big deal or not. The Lord gives us his word on what he thinks. Listen to verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Friends, do you hear an echo of your own words in the words of Saul? Are we tempted to make really pious sounding excuses for the sin that we commit at times. You know, I, I want, I, I know that for me to do this thing, to, to drink in excess, to carry on and tell inappropriate joke, I know that that's not necessarily the right thing, but I want opportunities to share the gospel with my coworkers and I need to fit in. I forced myself. I had to. Well, Sure, I, I understand. I know gossip is a sin, but People, somebody needed to know this. Somebody needed to know. And it's not a sin if it's got good intention. Right? But the judgment here from God is that sin, no matter how religiously plausible it sounds, sin is foolish. Sin is foolish. Commentator Joyce Baldwin, she writes this, kind of thinking about this whole episode of Saul, these few chapters. As far as outward observance of religious ritual was concerned, he had done the right thing. From, from looking outside, he did like what looked like the right religious thing. But he had failed to appreciate the crucial importance of submitting his will to that of the Lord God of Israel. Even in a hard spot. Saul, instead of submitting to the Lord, instead of waiting, he has disregard and does what he should not do. And the response really is like, things actually look worse at the end of chapter 13. Okay, so the from here, the rest of this chapter, Saul's army, I don't know if you remember, like chapter 11, there were 300,000. Earlier here, there's like 3,000. By the end of this chapter, 600. He's down to 600 men. And on top of that, that the very last kind of paragraph, the Philistines, they control all the blacksmiths in the area. So there's a, an army of 600 men, and there are two people who have a sword or a spear. It's Saul and Jonathan. And then 598 people who just grab whatever farm tool they could find. And that's, that's what you got. Right? It's, a, it's a tough match for Saul, the man who was chosen by Israel to fight their battles for them. That's what they wanted in chapter 8. We want you to fight the battles for us. Tough to do with six hundred men and two swords. But in chapter fourteen, we do see a battle fought, and we see victory actually won. But but actually, kind of again in condemnation against Saul, the one who fights the battle is not Saul. It's Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who comes and does what Saul should be doing. Okay, so look at chapter fourteen. And look at verse 6. This is Jonathan. And he says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. The Philistines in his mind, they're just the enemies of the Lord, the ones not following him. And then look at what Jonathan says. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Yes, the the numbers, they really don't look that good, right? 600 in the army of Israel, several thousand chariots, plus army like the sand of the seashore, right? But Jonathan knows numbers don't matter. Uh, Scottish reformer John Knox, this is on your notes, he says, A man with God is always the majority. A man with God is always a majority. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go up to the Philistine garrison. They kill about 20 soldiers. And the Lord uses that seemingly small battle, that seemingly small victory of an act of faith on Jonathan's part. He uses that to incite panic in the Philistines so that by the time you get kind of the middle of chapter 14, the Philistines are attacking one another. This is the beginning of what should be a really great victory for Israel. Now, I want to pause here and ask, why do we get this story about Jonathan? Why highlight him? And through the rest of this chapter, we'll see him highlighted as well. And I hope what you see here is that Jonathan stands out. Like, there is a contrast happening from Saul and Jonathan. And and the author of this text, the Lord, wants us to know this is the way. Right? Walk in this way. Saul He was the king asked for by the people. He's supposed to be the one full of faith, leading the charge into battle. But the human hero in this story is Jonathan. He exemplifies another famous quote by a missionary, William Carey. Expect great things for God. God wants this victory. And then attempt great things for God. Jonathan knows that the Lord is not intimidated by numbers, so he moves forward in faith. And what Jonathan tells you and me, part of the positive of what we see in this text, is that genuine trust fixes its eyes on God and not on the opposition that we face. Genuine trust fixes its eyes upon the God we follow. And we will see over and over throughout the scripture, this is the example of genuine faith that is put before us and that we are called to follow. In two chapters, well, two weeks at least, this is the type of genuine faith that means a little boy, a shepherd boy named David will go fight a giant named Goliath. This is the type of genuine faith that means a man named Daniel will go down on his knees again to pray to the Lord when he knows that that will lead to a den of lions. Or or just think about the New Testament. This is the type of genuine faith that when Peter, one man, is faced with the council of Jewish rulers and they say, You need to be quiet. Sit down, son. And Peter says, We can't help but say what we've seen. That's the kind of genuine faith, friends, that makes it possible for you and I to stand for the gospel When all of our family may say, that is a ridiculous thing to give your life for. I can't believe you would spend your money on something like that instead of doing all the pleasures that you want. It's the type of genuine faith that means members of our own church have said that instead of pursuing the pleasures and the ease even of living here, we will give up our lives to go bring the gospel overseas. This is the type of genuine f- trust that the Lord calls for, and I titled the sermon, "What Is It That God Wants?" And here in the life of Jonathan, we get at least part of our answer. The Lord wants your and my complete trust. He wants our trust. Now, after after God uses Jonathan and his faith to start this uh, start this battle that should be huge victory, Saul waltz is in from stage right, and nobody knows how to ruin a perfectly good victory like Saul. He's real good at this. And in particular, in this story, we'll see that Saul's foolishness really hides and obscures the Lord's provision. Uh, Saul's foolishness is displayed in a few different ways, but really the chief example here is in verse 24. Okay, so the people of Israel, they're pursuing the Philistines, and Saul, just in a moment of utter foolishness, says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, I'm, I'm not, uh, I know some of you maybe are veterans, I'm not a veteran, I've never fought in a war. I just imagine, and this is a very different kind of war than the war we fight today, this is like chase the people as they run kind of war. Okay, so you need some energy to do that kind of thing. And Saul, in a a moment, just says, I I don't care. He's so zealous. See what he's zealous for in verse 14? You see just those pronouns that he uses? Until I am avenged on my enemies. Saul is personally slighted by these Philistines in his country. And so he says, not until we get to vengeance. And what makes this really worse, this is a, a foolish vow to begin with, but what makes it worse is that God seems to have provided in this story for, the, for Israel to defeat the Philistines. Look, look at verse 25. Now, when all the people came to the forest chasing these Philistines, behold, there was honey on the ground. Uh, I just want, I'm curious, maybe this does happen. Raise your hands if you've ever walked through a forest and seen just like honey laying on the ground all around you. Great, okay, I grew up with woods in my backyard, and like I I spent a lot of time in the woods, and I never saw anything like this. Or verse 26 says the honey was dropping. Okay, it's like, you remember, maybe you've seen the Winnie the Pooh, and there's a honey tree. That's what I imagine happening. It's like they found a forest full of Winnie the Pooh honey trees just dropping everywhere from them. And that sounds like God has provided for his people before, even. Right, um, kids, do you remember there's a story in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel are walking in, they're, they're going to Sinai, and they're hungry, and the Lord provides food for them. Does anybody remember what that food was called? Lane? Manna, that's right. God provided manna. This is, I won't ask this, but maybe you remember this if you've read this. God actually describes what manna tastes like, even. He says it's like wafers. Made with, what else? But honey. Wafers with honey. The Lord provided for his people in Exodus. And he seems to be providing providentially here. But, But Saul has said, nope. Vengeance. Vengeance first. Providence later. Now Saul uh sorry Jonathan doesn't know about this right Jonathan went up and fought against the people uh, fought against the Philistines he's not heard about this curse so in verse 27 we read that Jonathan put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it in his mouth and his eyes became bright uh which seems really vague his eyes becoming bright just means like if you ever you get energy and you say I can I can go longer his eyes became bright and he was revived then a hungry fellow soldier looks, and I think maybe out of jealousy, perhaps says, "Hey, you know, you know, you weren't supposed to, weren't supposed to eat that. Your dad said that was that was cursed." And then Jonathan, in verse twenty-nine, gives us an honest assessment. I think this is even just the narrator helping us think through the honest assessment of what Saul has done. Jonathan said, "My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better!" if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And the rest of the chapter really bears that out. In verses 31 through 35, the people are so hungry, they fall upon the spoil. They get to, uh, night comes, and they start eating whatever they can find. They're like a group of men after two days, and they just start eating animals without uh, draining the blood, which is... Not They were commanded to drain the blood in a place like Leviticus 17. And then when Saul says he wants to pursue the Philistines, Saul finally kind of gets the picture. This might be the day we drive the Philistines out for good. He says, let's pursue. But they say, you know, we should ask the Lord first. Good thought. And they ask the Lord, and the Lord is silent. This becomes kind of normal in Saul's life, where he asks the Lord, and the Lord is silent to him. And so Saul says there must be some problem, and he makes what is a second foolish vow in verse 38. Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And the Lord makes very clear, following that, that it was Jonathan who broke that oath that Saul had given And Saul is so dead set on carrying out his foolish vow and putting Jonathan to death that he says that's that's what we'll do. But then the people here step in and here, instead of Saul doing the right thing, it's the people of Israel. Look at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he would so that he did not die. Chapter 14 is a way that God has provided a way to potentially wipe out the Philistines but Saul's utter foolishness his rashness these vows that he makes Turn what should be just a great victory into a stalemate. We see his foolishness really on full display in the chapter. And we see even his hypocrisy come to the forefront here as well. In chapter 13 and chapter 15, it's Saul who disobeys the word of the Lord. And what happened when he was confronted with his disobedience in chapter 13? We read earlier, he, he starts deflecting. And he starts pointing blame elsewhere. He treats his sin like it is not that big of a deal. But then, when Jonathan disobeys Saul's word, he treats it like it is high treason. And he demands that he be put to death. Friends, Saul's elevated view of himself has just blinded him to his faults. And it can do the same for us. If you want to see what pride does to our spiritual vision, it is here. We can say that we are lifted high, and when someone doesn't do what we want, they are accursed. But my sin is not that big of a deal. We minimize and blame shift. And more and more, what's happening in the life of Saul is that he is conforming, not into like the image of the king that God desires. He's actually becoming exactly like what the Lord promised. He's becoming more and more like a king, like the nations around them. He's looking more and more like a Philistine and less and less like a faithful Israelite. And Saul's problems are not done yet. Chapter 15 is really, I think, the climax of Saul's rejection. And it's where we see Saul does not do what the Lord commands. In verse of chapter 13, he does something he shouldn't do. In verse 15, he doesn't do what he should Now, this story does have some ancient background, so uh, I think this is important to know what's coming and why this is carried out. So in, in Exodus chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, I'll just tell you the story briefly. The people of Israel are on their way to Mount Sinai, and there they are met with opposition by the nation of Amalek, the Amalekites, who we see here. That's pretty easy to forget, but you may remember the way in which this battle plays out. Uh, this is a battle where Moses goes up, and as the Amalekites and the Israelites are fighting, Moses stands and holds his hands out over the people of Israel. And when his hands are up, the Israelites are winning. And Moses starts dropping his hands, thinking it's done, and the Amalekites start winning. Now, maybe I got that backwards. When his hands are up, Israel's winning. When his hands are down, the Amalekites winning. Got it? And then Aaron and Hur come and hold his hands up. And as long as they hold his hands up, they win. And so Israel wins this victory over Amalek. And then at the very end of this, in Exodus seventeen fourteen, the Lord gives this promise. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek had sought to destroy the people of God then. And the testimony of this text and elsewhere is that they had continued as warmongering enemies of God's people of Israel, and even of the nations around them. Now, look with me at Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In the years since the time of Egypt, Amalek had not repented. It continued in opposition to God and to his people, and the bill had come due for Amalek. Now, this this is a hard word to hear, but we should be clear. The focus of the biblical narrative, if you just back out, and, and even the focus here. Later, when, when Samuel refers to the Amalekites, he just stops to say, sinners. The focus of Scripture is not that God hates a specific ethnicity. Just look around our room and think of the people here. But that God cannot have sin in his presence. And that sin will be judged. This is a judgment ultimately against sin. As one commentator put it, destruction will come to the Amalekites, not because they are Amalekites, but because they are sinners. And ultimately this is a foreshadowing of greater judgment that ultimately comes for those who do not turn and trust in Christ. Those who live in rebellion against him forever. And so the Lord says, carry this out. And Saul does defeat the Amalekites, but in verse 8, we're told that he decided to do things a little bit differently. Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord then came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Really quickly here, this is a side. I know hearing the words I regret from the Lord, about the Lord, may bring a host of questions to your mind. And I'm happy if you want to talk more about those, to so talk afterwards. Here's the quick thing. Just thinking through that, the Lord regretting and you and I regretting are not exactly the same thing. When you think about regret, when I think about the things that I regret in my life, the things that I regret are choices that I made that were mostly due to my own foolishness and my sin. We we regret because of that. If you actually look down later in the passage in verse 29, we're told the glory of Israel, that is the Lord, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret lord does not make mistakes due to imperfections in him he does not say something like man i really wish i would have done that differently if i would have seen known what was happening i would have done something different that's what you and i do That's not what God does. That's what verse 29 tells us. What verse, uh, what verse 11 is telling us though is that God is grieved. That God is grieved over sin. God has not changed and does not change. But Saul is one who has shown himself treasonous and rebellious and faithless. And the Lord's consistent response to that is sorrow and grief. So Samuel goes out to meet Saul in verse 13. Pick back up at verse 13. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, this is maybe some of the best writing in scripture. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? This, this is like the kid with chocolate on his mouth saying, nope, didn't, didn't eat the brownie. Samuel knows. And Saul, who minimized and blame shifted in chapter 13, goes on the same rampage of minimizing and blame shifting here. Listen to verse 15. Saul said, they, they have brought from, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. And listen to the judgment in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption or pride is as iniquity and idolatry. We'll stop right there and pick back up in just a minute. This is the sad portrait of these three chapters, kind of encapsulated. Saul, the king of Israel. The one who from a glance from the outside world and maybe from the history books written about him from even his enemies who was successful. He has come to a place where on the inside he is rotten. And instead of wanting to obey the word of the Lord, instead of setting that bar as a thing, this is who I obey. This is how I show faith. He's now acting to do what is right in his own sight. He has become the one who says what is right and good. Not the Lord. And it's here where we see the main point, I think, of these three chapters. We usually give this to you up at the beginning, but I hope just kind of walking through these chapters has made this point clear. God wants your complete trust and obedience, not your outward piety or partial obedience. And so we should ask, like Saul, are we satisfied are you, friends, satisfied with the outward appearance of a religious looking life? Does partial obedience feel like, you know, that's, that's good enough for the people around me? It's probably good enough for me. And I feel maybe especially burdened in a place like Birmingham where I would have just assume that most people who walk into a church are likely familiar with the Christian, Christianity really as a religion. And you probably know some of the moral code that we follow, some of the things that we say are important to us, and I want to be as clear as possible. Doing religious things and living in a way that is mostly obedient is not, is not the ultimate thing that God wants from you. I fear there are many people who may check the box on a census. That says Christian, but if they looked at their lives, if they would see maybe a reflection of Saul, someone who is satisfied with playing a role, playing at Christianity, and if if that is you, friend, if you feel like you have been satisfied with partial obedience, elevating yourself instead of trusting in Christ, stop playing. That's what Samuel tells Saul: stop. Know, friend, that what God wants of you is complete trust to know and follow him. And if you have questions about what that looks like, if you want to know what that looks like, there are a host of people in this room who have done just that. And who realize maybe even the testimony of many of us is that we realize that for years we were playing at church. And that we were doing things that looked really good There's not a lot of people in here who had just outwardly, terribly rebellious lives. But we're a room full of people who said, I did, I looked really good. I did religious things. I went to the right places. I memorized the right questions and answers. But I didn't trust. And if that's you, we want to urge you. You can today trust completely in this God. And in the Christ who he has sent for us. That is what we want for you. If you have questions about that, I would be happy to talk with you. I would love nothing more than to talk with you after this service. If you came here with a friend, if you know another Christian in this room, or if you don't, just ask somebody who you've seen on stage this morning. We would love to tell you what it looks like to completely trust in this God. And follow him. That is what this text wants of us. The portrait of Saul we see is rotten on the inside and we want to be, I want to be clear and I want to be urgent with this message because of this next point, because this interior rot leads to rejection from above. In chapter 13 for Saul, it's, Saul is told what should be like a dynasty, the beginning of the Saul dynasty of kings, it begins with Saul and it ends with Saul. And then the consequences grow in chapter 15. We stopped midway through verse 23, but here the condemnation in the, the second half of verse 23 in chapter 15. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. His rejection and disobedience grieves the Lord. Now Saul admits that he has sinned in verse 24, and that may look, again, really good. But I think it is again False piety. Just, just look at Saul in verse 30 when he confesses. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What, what's Saul's concern in his repentance and his turn? His his concern is now his public standing. Even even his reference to the Lord has just grown more distant. Not that I may be made right with the Lord my God, the Lord our God, the Lord your God. Saul expresses here worldly sorrow instead of godly repentance. If you ask, this is worth asking, what does godly repentance? If I, if I am confronted with this, what then would true repentance look like? These are just on your notes. If you, want, you can take this note sheet with you and think through these things today if you want to. This is, what does is godly repentance look like? True repentance doesn't excuse sin. Right? It doesn't point fingers at others in an attempt to clear our own name. It instead agrees with God's assessment of us. I am the man. I am guilty. True repentance cares about God's opinion above others' opinions. The truly repentant are less concerned about what those around them think. Their greatest concern is to move towards the Lord and be made right with him. And finally, true repentance results in action. Just think about other stories of repentance in the Bible. You think of Zacchaeus, a man who goes and has been stealing and says, I want to be made right and gives back a portion of what he has stolen. You see action. And this is important because it's not that obedience earns the favor of God. But those who are made right, those who have placed their faith and repented turn to Christ. They have obedience naturally flowing out of them. And Saul fails all three of these tests. He continues to excuse his sin. He's concerned primarily with how, what other people think about him. And there is no action on his part to make this right. In fact, at the end of, towards the end of this chapter, it's Samuel who does what he should have done. Samuel goes and kills Agag. Saul still is just saying, I'm, "I sin, but I just want to be look right in front of the other people." What about you, friends? Just just investigate your own repentance. If you're a Christian, even this is something that I have to think about the way in which I repent of my sin. I I walked out this morning and there was a trash bag that had been left out and some trash that some critter that had gotten in my trash bag, and I immediately thought, "What?" person left this trash bag out here and then I went who is responsible for the trash taking out the trash that's me that's my job we we naturally want to just point at others and say not my problem somebody else what what about you do you continue to excuse sin would you say the sorrow you feel is true repentance or are you just consumed with having a good image in front of other people. I've just got to keep doing the right thing so they think that I'm okay. Because when you're made aware of your sin, repent and run to Christ. And then the chapter of chapter 15, sadly ends with this parting of ways. Verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What, what a sad picture. The king walks over in one direction. And the prophet and with him the word of the Lord walk in another direction. And never again will the two meet. These are tragic and heavy chapters. If you feel the weight of that, uh, you're reading them rightly. But thankfully there is still hope in The story of Saul, Saul has rejected the Lord and the Lord has rejected him, but the Lord has not rejected his people and he has not gone back on his promises. There's, there's still a promise to come. And we may, in this story, we kind of hope it's Jonathan, right? Jonathan is a great guy. And this is why the judgment of of chapter 13 is so sad because Jonathan would be a much better king than Saul. It seems. But Saul's sins have consequences that mean that his line of kings ends with him. And Jonathan will not be king. But thankfully, God is not done. Immediately after the judgment on Saul, where he says you won't have kings coming after you, in chapter 13, verse 14, this is what is told. Chapter 13, verse 14, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people you may hear that phrase, a man after God's own heart and think somebody who's pursuing the right things of God. And that that's true. In a sense, we want that David will be that man. But, but here, I think the author, I think what's happening and Samuel is pointing out something a little bit different. I didn't mention this earlier, but Saul's name means asked for the one who is asked for, right? Saul is the one is the people's choice award winner. He is the one that the people say, we want this guy. uh, God is going to raise up someone who is God's choice, according to his heart. The one, not that the people demand, but God says, I know that this is what they need. And the one who will lead them. And in the coming of King David, though he is not perfect, he proves over and over again to be the anti-Saul. David is a man who sins, but repents. Who puts his trust in the Lord, who walks in obedience to him. What good news for the people of Israel. And friends, what good news for you and me. This is the reality, is that left to our choice and the thing that we ask for, oftentimes the thing that we demand and ask for is part of our own undoing, just to solve us. This is what we want. But God, in his mercy, has a better plan. He will raise up according to his purpose. And when we see Come on the scene, great David's greater son, Jesus. Our eyes are finally opened and made bright. And we see one who is utterly unlike Saul and who is so much better than David. One who offers up not just partial obedience, but perfect obedience. One who is able to offer up not an unlawful sacrifice, but is able to sacrifice his own flesh for his people. What God wants of you, dear friend, He does not want some good looking religious credentials for you to have the right church card to play in front of your friends and family. He does not want some partial obedience that appeases your conscience and maybe looks good to those around you. What this God wants of you is complete and utter trust in the one who is to come, in his son. Jesus Christ, in full obedience to him. So the question for you and for me is, will we walk in that way? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending a promised one. We admit even today that we often do not repent that we often are satisfied by our own partial obedience and incomplete trust. We ask that you would elevate Christ in our sight, and that we would trust him, and that we would obey him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.